This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 66 of the podcast where we take you inside to those aviation jobs and give you a feeling and a look at the actual job of flying or working as a mechanic, etc. Well, you know, one of the things that I love to do is fly helicopters, and the job of a helicopter pilot is really exciting. It's rewarding and of great benefit to our society. I've had a long interest in flying helicopters and have only a few hours, but can tell you the most amazing thing in the world is being able to hover above the ground as if you're floating in the air. It's truly magical. Well, today I have with me someone who enjoys this magical experience as part of his job. Captain Ross McClure is a United States Army helicopter pilot. is going to help us understand what it's like to be a career Army helicopter pilot. Captain McClure is uh, second in command of the Multinational Force and Observers Aviation Company. Uh, his job includes planning, coordinating, and directing employment of aviation assets to support the Egypt-Israeli Peace Treaty. Uh, and we'll have some links, by the way. Uh, he also supports the civilian observer units and, and the other distinguished visitors. Uh, his job entails assisting the unit commander in the management of logistics, administration, and operation of over $90 million in assets and over 50 personnel, including aviation aircraft and component repairmen, rotorcraft aviators, flight operations specialists, fuel supply technicians, and technical supply specialists. So if you're interested in knowing about Army Aviation, this is the person to talk to. Well, welcome to the show, Captain McClure, and thanks so much for your service. Hey, Carl. Thanks. It's great to be with you. <laughs> uh, speaking of being with me, I'm, I'm in, uh, in a really warm environment here in sunny Florida. Uh, I think you're also in a warm environment. Where are you located? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm in uh, El Gora, Sinai, Egypt. And that's, that, that's a little bit warmer than here in Florida, I think, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it says uh, t- thirty degrees Celsius, whatever oh. that is. Okay, so, so. It's, it's similar. That's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. That's it's, not too bad. No, no. Uh, well, you, he's got. You've got a really exciting job, and uh, thanks for being here with us and helping us understand what it's like to be an Army aviator. Uh, the um, now, as far as flying right now, just give us an idea what what you're actually doing as far as flying. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't gotten to fly much in the past few weeks. Um, uh, all my my other duties uh, have kind of taken me away from from the cockpit. But uh, um, about uh, uh, a month ago, I uh, I had a really cool mission. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, um, yeah, so uh, we were taking some communications personnel out to a remote site in the middle of the desert. Uh, this was towards the the end of the evening, and and you know the cool thing, like you're saying about helicopters, is uh, it's it's point in space. Uh, we can we can come in uh, and land exactly where you need us, um, and we can we can take that that person or that thing exactly where where you need us to take it. And so uh, we're able to reach those remote places that that maybe a, an airplane uh, might struggle to to get into. Uh, so we. We fly into a remote site, and uh, the communications personnel are doing their job, and then we get a call uh, that uh, there's a priority patient uh, 
to the south at another remote site that needs to be evac'd and taken to the hospital. So we load everybody up, and by then, uh, it's it's nighttime. The, the pilot in command and the crew chief and I had never been to this other remote site. We had to fly under night vision goggles um, into this remote site. Uh, the crew had to work together to identify all these different hazards. There were uh, wires and different things. Uh, it was a very dynamic uh, type of environment, and the crew came together, uh, and, and we got the patient uh, safely. We took him back to our camp. And, you know, at, at the end of the night uh, like that, uh, that's a really satisfying night, knowing that that person uh, got the care they needed very quickly within 45 minutes. Uh, and then ground transportation, it could have taken hours uh, for them to try to get that far out. So it's like a helicopter, in, or excuse me, it's it's just like having somebody call nine one one, and and head out there, you know, getting an ambulance in the air. That's that's awesome. That's really yeah. awesome. It that yeah. and that's something that I think people don't realize. Helicopters, as, as a buddy of mine always said, you know, it's uh, it's saved many more lives than they've cost. And uh, I said, boy, you know, that's pretty profound, but it's true. Uh, helicopters have, have done so many things for people and have extricated people from some pretty bad situations. And and you guys make it look so easy. So it, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, you know, I, I started doing some helicopter lessons and, and watching people land on these remote sites just amazes me. Because, uh, you know, I just wanted to keep it on the field, and these guys put it like down in, in these small little postage stamp areas. <laughs> just phenomenal. Well, that, that's that's really cool. I mean, that's so neat that you get to do a mission like that. You must, you know, really feel satisfied, and, and that's, there's a lot of gratification in that type of a job. And, and I'm sure there's many more stories that you could tell us about, uh, similar to that one, uh, about people you've been able to help. And I think that's really, really awesome. But currently, before we start talking about flying, I think this is really cool, the job you have now. It's a little bit more administrative. Uh, but before we go into that specific job, you're working with the, the multinational force and observers. And uh, you know, I know right now you're speaking uh, as basically a civilian. You're, you're speaking for yourself and, and not specifically uh, for you, who you work for. But could you tell us a little bit about this multinational force and observers, just to give us a really quick history? Sure. Before I do that, Carl, um, uh, definitely, like you said, uh, I'm not speaking uh, as a public uh, official or as part of uh, uh, being an officer in the U.S. Army or anything like that. Uh, anything I say uh, on the show, it's it's not the official view of, of the U.S. government or the U.S. Army. Uh, it, it, this is all just my opinion. Also, anything I talk about, none of it is is secret. And uh, the MFO itself uh, is, is not a secret organization, it, although many people don't know about it. It's a small uh, private peacekeeping effort, uh, but it's been going on for more than 30 years now. Specifically, I'm, I'm assigned to uh, Task Force Sinai. That's a U.S. Army unit. Uh, and it's a small contingent of soldiers that serve within the multinational force and observers. So uh, the MFO uh, was established as a result of the Treaty of Peace uh, between Israel and Egypt after the Camp David Accords in 1979. Uh, so the 1980 uh, MFO was established in 1981. And over the years, uh, there have been a lot of peacekeeping efforts in the Middle East, uh, and, and there was a, a predecessor to, to the MFO as a UN peacekeeping effort. After 1979, they tried to uh, create a new UN peacekeeping effort in the Sinai, 
it uh, it failed because uh, the Soviet Union blocked it uh, at the UN. Uh, so uh, all three countries moved ahead anyways, and they formed a, a multinational organization uh, separate from the UN to enforce the peace. And uh, our job here is to observe, verify, and report uh, all the parts of that treaty uh, between Egypt and Israel here in the Sinai. And then the other thing that we do is we ensure the safe passage of vessels through the Gulf of Aqaba and the Suez Canal. Interesting. Now, how how do you do that? I mean, I guess that's not too secret, but you do that through observ- observing in the air, but also do you have, I guess you have forces on the ground too, I assume? Uh, yeah, and it's it's not secret at all, in fact. Uh, and we have a public domain website, which anyone can visit. Um, I don't know if you yeah, we'll maybe want to put that. that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, the, the way we do that, uh, what I, I, I call our, uh, in military terms, our main effort uh, is are the civilian observers. They're civilians. Uh, they may be uh, former military professionals or they may be uh, not associated with the military. And they, uh, they wear civilian clothes uh, and they fly on our helicopters and they'll – uh, go out to different areas uh, which um, may be of, uh, of interest. Maybe uh, uh, Israel would potentially, from the point of view of Egypt, stage forces in, in this place or this place. Uh, so we'll, we'll fly out there and we confirm. And there are a certain composition of forces that, that each side is allowed to maintain uh, near the Sinai uh, for Israel and the Negev Desert and uh, for Egypt in the Sinai. So that's mostly uh, how we do that. It's, it's mostly by helicopter. So now we're, we're getting a little history lesson here and also geography. So what we're going to do, by the way, if you go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 66, we'll, we'll put some links to all what you're talking about there because, you know, honestly, this is something that happened many... This happened, this peace accord was done actually when I was in... I don't know. I was very young, and uh, most people weren't alive when this happened, because uh, it was uh, Carter, right, who who signed this in, and uh, who was part of this effort, I should say. And uh, yes, it's it's interesting because I don't think we we've I think it's it's part of our history that's kind of gone by the wayside, and we have had assets there for a very long time. Uh, so this is this is fascinating. So anybody listening, I encourage you to go out to the website and learn more about this, uh, as as I had to do. I did not realize the the force here. But one one thing that was really interesting in the part that you you said that it's not a secret organization is uh, the fact that your helicopters and we'll try to put a picture of one from the website. Uh, the helicopters are are quite obvious during the day because they're painted in, <laughs> uh, in a different yeah. color scheme than, than I've ever seen a military helicopter painted. Uh, what What is that color? It's white and it's, I think, orange or red? Yeah. So uh, that's what they say. Are, are you guys Coast Guard guys? You know, because it, it resembles <laughs> that, that Coast Guard uh, uh, color scheme. But no, uh, yeah, it's a, a white and then uh, terracotta orange, which is the official uh, color of, of the MFO, which represents, you know, the, the desert here. Um, <laughs> kind of looks like uh, Nemo, doesn't it? It's, <laughs> it's like, a, and we'll, <laughs> we'll post Nemo. it, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to miss us. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, but the you know it's it's really interesting though just to see this whole a group of helicopters color in that color scheme. Like I said, like you just said at first, when you look at it, you say, "Wait, is that Coast Guard?" No, wait a minute, that's something different. Um, but 
Now, this this force, and I, I, we could talk all day about the multinational force and the history, and I think it's really neat. And I encourage anybody who's listening, uh, just for your own edification, to learn more about it. Uh, it's it's really some good work that that you're doing there, and in keeping the peace, obviously that's always a good thing. Uh, but to, you actually have been part of uh, Army helicopter aviation for a while, so let's talk a little bit more about flying jobs and Army aviation and how you got to where you are now. Uh, how, you've how long have you been in Army aviation, by the way? Well, that's um, that's a good question. I arrived at flight school in 2008, so that's not really that long, actually. No, okay. Yeah. Cool. And then, so you were uh, in the Army prior to that, uh, I'm assuming, before 08? Yeah. Okay. And then you went into Army aviation. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about flying jobs in the Army, because I personally, ha- all usually what I see are like the Blackhawks, but uh, you see a lot of helicopters. And someone said, if you want to fly, it's going to be helicopters and in the Army. But that's not totally true, is it? There's some other aircraft no. that the Army actually flies. So could you enlighten us a little bit on what other aircraft they fly? Yeah, they, they do fly um, uh, a few variants of the, of the C-12. Uh, there are some other helicopters that they fly. Um, um, there are uh, some larger aircraft. Uh, but it's true, actually. It's true that there, the the fleet of airplanes is very small, and the airplane community in the U.S. Army is very small. Uh, what the Army is really about, uh, not just for Army aviators, but the whole U.S. Army. This is a helicopter army, um, and we move and fight by by helicopters. Right, and that's um, and that and they're a great tool, as we've seen in uh, in certain wars, that it's actually shown that this is an incredible tool, uh, the helicopter. So I don't really think it. That though they're going away, the helicopters. But uh, but what what different like flying jobs are there? I know there's uh, like you said with the um, there's the attack, there's search and rescue. Uh, what other type of things do you do with a helicopter in the military? Yeah, as far as uh, flying jobs, now that's just that's excluding uh, the 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 endless ways that every soldier in the U.S. Army interacts with with aviation. Uh, but but just the, the aviation branch. Um, we have a we have a fleet of helicopters that kind of represent the major personalities or the major cultures in Army aviation. I would say mm-hmm. they also represent what I would say are, are kind of the major missions. So you have an attack platform, you have a heavy lift platform, you have a medium lift, uh, and then you have a, a reconnaissance, uh, a light helicopter. So uh, and, and that's uh, the the CH forty seven Chinook is the the heavy lift aircraft. Uh, it can do a lot of other stuff. It can do waterborne operations. It can float uh, like a boat. Um, it can land on water. It can uh, yeah. Uh, it can uh, do heavy air assault. It can do mass casualty evacuation. Um, it, it's a, it's an incredible aircraft. The Apache, of course, is is very scary machine. You know, very powerful machine. Uh, it's it's solely attack. I would say that that uh, is the 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 one platform with a singular purpose, and that is that is uh, aerial combat. That's uh, attacking the enemy by air. Uh, and then, um, of course, I'm going to save the best for last. <laughs> so then you have uh, the OH-58. <laughs> uh, Kiowa is a, a light reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, people are actually probably more familiar with that aircraft than than they think. That's the Bell Jet Ranger, um, and uh, it's a militarized version of it. Uh, the great thing about the uh, Jet Ranger, which is probably why it's such a successful business uh, helicopter, is because 
it's easy to maintain. It's a simple helicopter for a turbine engine uh, helicopter. It's, it's very simple. Uh, and uh, it's it's easy to keep them what we say fully mission capable. Um, and then of course, best of all, <laughs> is the uh, <laughs> is the Blackhawk. And and I and I, I say that with with some pride. I say that's the best of all. But it, it is kind of the workhorse of, of the fleet. Uh, we probably have the most uh, Blackhawks, and um, they they can do almost almost anything. They're used in almost every role. They're kind of that middle middle of the road and they're they're highly maneuverable i've noticed i uh, i don't know if you heard me talk about this on one of the other shows but i was uh, did my first flight to medellin down in colombia and there's uh, quite a few uh, blackhawk helicopters there as a matter of fact there's so many that they have models that are sold on the streets you know that are made uh, you know kids will buy them i buy them they're, they're really neat uh, little uh, wooden models and this guy, it, it looked like a wingover from where I was sitting. He came, just came straight up and then did this kind of like a wingover type maneuver, and I thought it was going to crash. Yeah. And I was like, gosh, you know, I don't think I'd ever do that in a helicopter, but I'm not sure if that's somewhat of a normal maneuver or not for you guys. <laughs> but you wouldn't see me doing that, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> return, return to target, it's called. Yeah, they, they can, uh, you know, uh, and that's the thing about a helicopter. It can stop, you know, it can... You know what? Never mind. I'm I'm going to stop this uh, this climb, and I'm going to I'm going to immediately turn into a a dive. You know, uh, it's it's something they could do for sure. Wow, yeah, that that is just pretty darn impressive. Uh, uh, when I saw saw that just a few weeks ago, it was just oh my gosh, this is incredible. So they they have a lot of utility, and they're a lot more maneuverable than I ever ever imagined. Uh, now you you get to do the really exciting part. You're on the basically what they call the pointy end of, uh, of the flying, but there are so many other jobs uh, in aviation, in and around helicopters, uh, in aviation in general. Uh, maybe we could we could list a few of those before talking about how you got into the Army aviation and how uh, how people can can get into that. So what what else could they do? And that they're primarily most of the jobs too. Those other jobs, right? Oh yeah, Carl. Oh, there's a ton of stuff. And and like I said, for one thing. Uh, if if you uh, if you join the army, you're inevitably going to be exposed to aviation. Uh, more than likely, it's going to be a big part of of your job. Uh, you've got uh, aircraft refuelers, you've got avionics technicians, you've got, uh, of course, uh, repairmen, which come in uh, as much of a variety as as we have aircraft and systems. Uh, you've got um, uh, all of the different maintainers uh, in, a, in a maintenance activity, uh, they all take pride in what they do. You know, uh, you have guys that focus on just the component repair, and within that, it may be just the hydraulic components. Or uh, you may have sheet metal guys, and uh, they, you know, sheet metal guys are so proud. They're like, oh, you can just make anything out of anything. You know, the, uh, it's, it's, and I love working in that environment uh, where there's so much pride and, uh, and, uh, we really love, uh, what we do when it comes to, to aviation. Uh, there's a flight operations specialist, which I was a flight operations officer before as well. And, uh, I managed a flight operations, uh, section. And, um, that's, a, that's very important. Uh, there's uh, obviously there's air traffic controllers. I could go on. It's almost impossible to name uh, every activity that's going on. But there's a ton of, of fun stuff uh, to do in aviation. You you can get into it without flying. You know, if you just want yeah, to be an absolutely. Airplane, it's an aircraft. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, I, I'd give you an example. Um, when I was in Korea, uh, we flew some some really uh, some interesting missions, and uh, I was there with some very young crew chiefs. Oftentimes, crew chiefs will be very senior. Um, now, a crew chief is a member of the crew. Uh, they manage the back part of the aircraft. Uh, sometimes we'll call them backseaters. Uh, they manage the load of the aircraft. They're also qualified repair repairmen. So they, if something happens with that aircraft, they understand what needs to to be done. You know, the weight and balance, the the, the paperwork and logbooks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and they're so they're an essential part of the crew. Uh, anyways, so when I was in Korea, uh, these uh, crew chiefs they may only have a two year commitment in the army. Uh, but they come out and they flew the same missions I did. Now they weren't behind a set of controls, but they were they were there with me in the aircraft. Uh, they had this uh, amazing adventure for two years, and then they some of them moved on and did something else, or some of them became pilots, or some of them, you know. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> that is pretty neat. I mean, it, I, I think that if you're going to get into aviation, as far as helicopters, especially, that's the way to go is in the Army. And I have friends that are mechanics. And uh, if you're going to be a, a helicopter mechanic, I think that is the, the best place to go because you will have the opportunity to work on, on just about everything. And, uh, and you'll get a lot of experience because uh, there's, there's quite a few helicopters in the Army. I don't know if you know how many, but there's a lot of them. I know that. <laughs> I've, I've seen them yeah. in, in, uh, in Texas. Boy, they're, they're, I've seen them all over Texas. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so we, you know, again, there's there's a lot of opportunities there. But now, <clears throat> if someone's listening right now and they have their heart on becoming an army aviator and uh, actually have a, a nephew that just became one and just happy as can be, absolutely loves it. Um, how would you? How do you become an army aviator? Uh, what you call a low flyer? First of all, what what is that term, low flyer? Why did why? How did you guys get that moniker? The majority of our operations take place below a thousand feet AGL. Uh, most of, oftentimes even lower than that. So uh, we can operate as low as uh, well immediately above an obstacle to you know like twenty five twenty five feet above an obstacle, which is what we call nap of the earth. So uh, flying right next to the ground is uh, is is part of what we do. Yeah. 25 feet. That's that's a bit low. I'm uh, not sure I'd feel too comfortable yeah. uh, unless I was in a flare uh, below 25 yeah, feet. Yeah, and I, well, that, <laughs> I wouldn't call that routine flying, but um, you know, uh, uh, being close to the ground is is, is normal, especially operating uh, 500 feet or, or anything like that. In fact, I would say that uh, for most of us, um, flying. Uh, where you do is, is what would be uncomfortable, you know, <laughs> uh, flying at, uh, if, if you're talking about 10,000 feet, you might as well be talking about outer space. You know, I'm not comfortable, <laughs> you know, flying up, uh, 15, 20,000 feet, you know? Yeah. It, it is so neat to be so, that close to the earth. I, I always am excited when I can get below 5,000 feet and to, to look at things on the earth and see things up close and personal. But, uh, you yeah. get to see them much, much closer than 5,000 feet. And uh, even a small yeah, plane, you know, it's funny because on a, especially on an airliner, you know, if you're at a thousand feet, usually you have to be stabilized and you're landing. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not tooling around down there. Um, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but going back to becoming an army aviator, first of all, uh, you have to get into the army. 
and there's some requirements in yeah, the army. Yeah, that's right. And so you're, you know, it's yeah. like anything else. You're, you're first. You're, you're in the military first. You're flying a helicopter second. Uh, so how, how does one go about becoming uh, someone that's in the army, and what should somebody do would be the second question to better prepare. So first of all, how do you get to the army? Yeah, let's talk about that first. And again, I want to put a little disclaimer here. This is not uh, the official word uh, on on how to, to join the army, but what we could do is we can put the website, I think it's just goarmy.com, okay. uh, yeah. but we could put that in there, and then uh, they'll link you with a local recruiter and or a career counselor and uh, and they can work it out from there. But um, just just my opinion, I, I want to encourage people. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up, Carl. Um, you know, when I first tried to join the Army, I, I went to, to a, a medical uh, in-processing station. And uh, uh, because of a condition I had when I was, uh, I was really young, uh, they put a PDQ on my on my medical file. It's permanent disqualification. Um, I had to go back uh, to the doctor that uh, had diagnosed me when I was like a, a little kid. And amazingly, he he was old as dirt, <laughs> but he was still he was still practicing. And uh, we got it cleared up in time. But uh, that hasn't been the only obstacle. Um, we've got a saying in the military: um, uh, where there's a will, there's a waiver. And and I and <laughs> You know, uh, uh, and and that's really the, the the case now. Not not for everything, uh, but I just want to encourage people that um, there are standards. There are standards that you have to meet. There are medical standards. Uh, a person may say, "Well, it's not my fault," you know, that I have asthma or something like that. But uh, there uh, there are. We live in a different age. You know, I was told in school that because I had flat feet, I would never be allowed in the army. Everyone told me that. Right. Uh, and that that was completely untrue. <laughs> That's not true at all, because we we've uh, we have new technology now. There's different requirements. Um, you know, we have we have technology for your feet so that so that a, a person can be a soldier and they can ruck, you know, 30 miles uh, and, and it won't uh, damage them and they won't become a liability for the army. Uh, and, or if you're you know, you have to be physically fit. And, and that's that is a fact. If you're going to be a U.S. Army soldier, you got to be uh, in good shape. You don't necessarily have to be in perfect shape coming in, uh, but it becomes a requirement as you go along in your service. Uh, but uh, they definitely do a lot to help you and shape you and, and everything like that. As far as joining the Army, you just talk to a recruiter. Now, uh, there are two types of aviators. We're talking about aviators mostly, right? right? As far as how to become an aviator. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you have aviators basically that are that would be at the controls, and then you have aviators that would not be. Non-rated crew members include uh, flight surgeons. That's pretty cool. Uh, that's a cool aviation job, by the way. Um, you have crew chiefs, uh, and you have flight medics. So, like I said, you could uh, join for two years uh, because the, the commitments are not as long uh, for being a, an enlisted soldier and you could be a, a, an aircraft repairman. You get to your unit, you say, hey, I want to fly. You go to flight training uh, and you learn about aircraft systems. You learn about emergency procedures. You act as a member of a crew uh, and then you can take it from there. And, and if you want or if you're already in the military, you can uh, you can request to go to flight training from there. So that's one route. One route is you join the military, and then your quest to go to flight training. You don't have to do that, though. 
there are definitely routes where you can go do- directly to flight training. And that's the, the other type of aviator in the U.S. Army is called a rated crew member. And that's a person that's trained to be behind a set of controls. That's a, a pilot. Uh, every rated crew member will go through uh, the U.S. Army's flight school. Uh, there are two types of U.S. Army rated crew members. Uh, you have commissioned officers, and then you have warrant officers. Uh, and so to become a, a warrant officer, it's, it's uh, the same thing. You can go to a recruiting office. You can say, hey, I want to be a pilot. I want to be a U.S. Army aviator. Uh, and then the, it's called street to seat. And you can go directly to basic training. Then you go to warrant officer candidate school. Uh, if you pass through warrant officer candidate school, then you uh, go to flight school and flight training. And then you show up your unit as a new pilot. You can also do that already from uh, if you're already in the military service, you can request to become a warrant officer. Explain real quickly the other, on the warrant officer. That's that's an enlisted person that's yeah. at a certain rank. Is that how that works? Right. So you have... Um, you have uh, two types of ranks in the U.S. Army. You have enlisted and, and, and commissioned, but uh, then you also have like a, a, a different type of officer in the U.S. Army. It's called a warrant officer. Warrant officers uh, are different from regular Army, Army leaders, commission officers, in that uh, they're, they're expected to be technical experts in their field. They're, they're supposed to be technical leaders. Uh, so for a warrant officer... Their career is really about that aircraft and that crew and that cockpit. They're expected to be uh, master aviators in time uh, and to continually uh, just perfect that that specific field. Uh, A commissioned officer, what what we call real-life officers, RLOs, um, their purpose is not actually to be pilots. Uh, their purpose is to lead army formations. They're supposed to be leaders. But, uh, you know, the, the thing is, how do you lead? How do you lead an aviation organization if you are not yourself an aviator? So every commissioned officer also has to go to flight school and is expected to be a competent and proficient aviator as well. Interesting, and that's that's the reason you're a captain. Is that uh, you went you went that route? Did you start as right. a non-commission, or did you start as, a, as an officer? Uh, yeah, so I I, um, I joined the uh, the National Guard when I was in college uh, to help uh, pay for college and and stuff, and then I uh, I went through the Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, and got my commission as a as a as a lieutenant. Uh, and then I, I requested the aviation branch, and I was—I I thank God that <laughs> I got it. And then uh, because of that, I got to go to flight school. And so, if if you're going to be a a commissioned officer as an aviator, uh, you have to receive a, a commission from one of several sources: either officer candidate school, if you're already in the military, uh, or reserve officer training corps. Uh, if you're in college, uh, or you can go to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Interesting. So there's now. It, would you? Which one of those would you suggest? I guess anything that would fit your lifestyle. I'm assuming is what you're going to say. But uh, yeah, um, Lee, no, uh, actually, uh, I, I'll give you my opinion on it, Carl. And, and anybody can contact me. And I'm not a recruiter or a career counselor, but um, it, it does depend. Uh, it does depend, but. Um, there are pros and cons, I think. Uh, the West Point 
uh, is obviously very competitive. But I tell you, Carl, the, the, the folks I've worked with that, that have had the opportunity to go to West Point, uh, if you're young and, and you're about to go to college, maybe you're interested in Army, Army aviation, those kids get an amazing education. Uh, the education at West Point is, is fantastic. Um, Reserve Officer Training Corps, I would say there's more certainty and flexibility uh, because uh, really your job is to get an education and be a college student while you're attending or while you're enrolled in ROTC. So uh, if, if you say, I want to go to this college, then you can have the opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, like I want to go to, well, we're, we're not supposed to name colleges on here, but, you know, yeah, any, any college, if you say, I, I, I chose, I wanted to go here, I wanted to be a chemist or study chemistry or political science or something, and uh, then you can join ROTC and get that degree and then still become an Army aviator. And by the way, you can do it part-time. You can, you can go through all that training, get sent to flight school, be a pilot, but come back and, and then do it in the reserves. So that's pretty cool too. Now there's an important point here too, and I'm just I'm starting to. Th this is great uh, for somebody who doesn't have the money also for school. They'll they'll pay for most of this, right? Or do they pay for all of it? That's the question I have. Yeah, it's a hundred hundred percent paid for. Yeah. Wow, wow. So if you're if you go to college, and I, I've had a, a few friends that have had their whole college paid for, and they've had master's degrees paid for, and by the army. Uh, obviously, what's going to happen afterwards? Instead of paid for, I, I should say, you are paying for it because you're going to, you're actually going to contribute your time uh, to the army, and you're going to have to, you have an obligation right. afterwards, and you will become either whatever it is, an officer or whatever, when you go in. Uh, so you have to give a certain number of years. I remember my one friend said he had to give eight years, and I forget why. But uh, what is the yeah. commitment usually? I don't, I don't understand what the whole commitment would be. It, it varies depending on the needs of the army uh, and and the position. Um, uh, currently, it's uh, six years. Um, I think the Air Force. I think the Air Force is eight years. Was your friend in the Air Force? Oh, maybe that's what it uh, was. Yeah. Pilot. Yes. Um, yeah. To in the army, it's it's six years, but it's six years for a warrant officer after completion of I think warrant officer candidate school. For me, it was basically eight years because I, I had to do two years of training. Uh, before my aircraft qualification, uh, and then it was six years after that. So I had an eight-year commitment. Yeah, but but when you're this commitment now to make people understand, uh, it's not <laughs> it's not like when you go work for say an airline and you're an <laughs> yeah. intern. You're working. You're you're getting paid, and and you're actually yeah. working a job. So there's a lot of upside to this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and you're getting a lot of good experience. It's it's pretty awesome. I, you know, looking back, boy, I, I uh, you know, fortunately had the money to pay for school, um, but gosh, if I didn't, this would be a wonderful way. You're doing a couple things here. You're you're paying for your school, or they're paying for the school. You're getting job experience, right? And number yeah. three, there's another portion of this, and I think it's somewhat important: is you're serving your country. Uh, and and you're giving something back, I feel, to society and to your country and and to the world too, in in, in a lot of respects. So that that to me is awesome. Uh, there's a lot of fulfillment there. I'm assuming you, that's true with yourself also. I mean, yeah. I mean, just this the fact that you're able to to actually serve your country and and help other people around the world. I think that's that's great. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I think uh, um, the people I work with, that, that, that's one thing I love about my job is the people I work with, um, uh, even contrasting um, uh, which, which Army soldiers are, are, are great too, but even uh, <laughs> it may just be a little bit of pride on my part, but being an Army aviation, uh, everyone takes so much pride in their job and really to be in aviation uh, whether it's a, a technical field, uh, an operations field, uh, any, anything like that, it takes uh, a certain level of dedication, a certain a certain level of commitment. Uh, no one forced anyone to be there. Uh, you know, to a certain degree, it takes a person that wants to be there. Uh, so those are the people I get to encounter when I go to work. It's people that uh, uh, they take a lot of pride in their work, and and everyone enjoys being a part of that. Uh, and then on top of that. Uh, especially aviation. Aviation is always the centerpiece. Uh, where they're always, you know, uh, if there's a picture of some VIPs, probably one of our helicopters is is behind it because that's how they got there, you know. And uh, so we 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 do feel every every person at, at the airfield feels like uh, they they have an important job to do. They're a part of something, uh, and that's that's very satisfying. And I think that's it's true in any job. You have to be able to to justify what you're doing, why you're doing it to yourself. Because I think a lot of people get burnt out in their jobs when they can't say to themselves, you know, why did I get up this morning and what am I doing here? And uh, yeah. and, and, am I, and am I contributing to society? You know, we, we hear it all the time. You know, people writing into us saying, hey, listen, you know, I, gosh, you know, I, I've, lo- I've lost it. You know, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing anymore. And you have to say to yourself, well, why are you doing it? And, and sometimes it reinvigorates yourself. Uh, while you're there, because in the army, I'm sure there's a lot of folks the same way. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm where we want to be. And then at certain points, sometimes the decision is to move on. You know, sometimes you have to, you do have to make that decision to change your path and, and go down a different path. Now, if you're in the army and you find yourself there, uh, one of the worries I guess I would have is that I get down this path and I say, gosh, I don't really. You know, I don't want to work in what you're doing now. Say I was in with the multinational force, and I, I want to go somewhere else. How hard is it for me to change my job, and is there a possibility of doing that? Well, as far as the MFO, that is a that's a an assignment. So I was given uh, orders to, and you, every soldier in the army gets a, a new assignment uh, every so often. It's kind of part of their method of uh, human resources management, also. Uh, how they develop a soldier over his or her career as they always put them in diverse assignments intentionally. So uh, you, you honestly don't get much of a choice there. Um, uh, You know, my previous assignment, this is, this is crazy, Carl. This is, this is good and bad. It may be a consideration for people that are listening to this. If they want to be an army aviator, especially as a commissioned officer, my previous assignment, I, I did not see a cockpit. Now, I went out of my way to uh, go to a simulator to stay fresh and things like that um, that had nothing to do with the organization when I was in. But I, my previous assignment, I was at the U.S. Army's Military Intelligence School, and I got, a, I got another occupational specialty in military intelligence, although I was a pilot. And then I left that, and then I, I went back to the cockpit. So if that's something, I think that's wild. You know, there's no telling where, uh, you know, I'll end up next. Right. Right. So yeah. there, there's diversity in the job. So in other words, you're not stuck where you are. You, you eventually you move on somewhere. 
you know, and, and yeah, something else. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, if you're on active duty, uh, then that's for sure. Uh, if you're in the reserves, uh, not so much the case. Uh, you'll you'll go to a unit and you'll probably stay there uh, throughout your career unless you move you and your family or something like that. Uh, so it's more like a regular job. But yeah, interesting. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges. And we're talking Army aviation, but you are in the Army now. There's some challenges about uh, I think being in the military in general. Uh, my wife, you know, she was in, her father was in the military. She was in the military. And uh, one of the things that I, I hear from her is that they moved a lot. Uh, they went from, you said these different assignments, right? And they were going from one assignment to the next. I think it was about every three years or so. Uh, so yeah. to me, that that might be a challenge is the, the moving around, the constant moving around. Um, so for some people, some people might actually really like that. Um, what what other challenges other than than constantly moving would there be, and how much moving do you actually do? As far as moving around, um, and and this again, this changes based on the, the the needs of the army. Actually, that's one of our big sayings: the needs of the army. You know, that's that's uh, because th- this is a service profession. So uh, whatever needs to happen to accomplish the mission, uh, that's going to come first, and. Uh, we, we all understand and accept that. Uh, but as an officer right now, you move about once every three years. Uh, there are also short assignments. Uh, I'm only here in Egypt for one year. Uh, and then I'll move on to, I was at my previous assignment for nine months. Uh, and then I was at my previous assignment before that for about three months. So, or I'm sorry, three years. Three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. Uh, How about um, other challenges besides I, I that? I mean, one? that can be, yeah, uh, I would say uh, it really depends. Um, for me, uh, as a commissioned officer, the challenge is the, um, as a commissioned officer, you, you never get to actually master a specific thing, uh, you, but you're expected to be competent in everything. Like you're supposed to be a jack of all trades. Uh, and that's so uh, I was just looking at, at something I was doing recently uh, where, you know, I had to train as a pilot uh, to do, uh, you know, like a like a challenging mission request. And then uh, I had to give a, a class on uh, environmental compliance. Uh, and then I had to and, uh, you know, th- there's all this, this there's so many aspects to military operations today uh, that, that that's something that's challenging, I think, uh, because when you move into an area, our military operations, especially in insurgency warfare, what is modern warfare, uh, you're expected to come up with the solutions to all the problems. The local populace needs, they need water. You know, they have essential complaints that underlie all of the problems there, uh, you know, and it's, it's, in, but that's a, that's a good thing too. That's, that's part of, uh, what's, uh, it's demanding and challenging, but also uh, that, that's why, you know, that's, that's what I get paid to do. And, and that's, uh, I think that's satisfying, you know, that I have, uh, have, I have these, uh, these challenges that I have to face. You have to figure out uh, answers to problems and things like that. How about with family? I mean, you're, uh, does your family come with you or do they stay? I'm assuming they stay behind on certain uh, assignments. Uh, so how often do you get to see your family? Uh, you know, you take this assignment, for example, uh, I'm, I'm taking, um, a leave of absence in, uh, October. I'll see my wife for, 
14 days, I think. Uh, and then um, apart from that, I, I wouldn't have seen her for uh, about six months prior to that. And I, I won't see her six months after that. Um, wow. And in my previous assignment, we were stationed together, but I still uh, I would get sent somewhere for two months at a time or, or three months at a time. So and during that time, I, I won't see her, you know, so right. uh, definitely that's that's something that's that's very challenging and you have to make the most of the time that the, that you have with your family. Uh, and I think it takes a, 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 a military families just amaze me uh, there. Uh, it, it takes something really incredible uh, in a person to um, to to be a part of a, a military family. The kids too, military kids. Uh, but military families, though, they, they accept uh, that that their family members are part of something that's important. Uh, that they have a mission to do, and uh, it's it's almost like being a part of a big family. So, in, in a sense, although that's a challenge. It's also a good thing, uh, at least in, in that way. So I'm assuming like back home, there's some support groups. I mean, I, I know I've, I've done a lot of flying into Fort Hood and uh, as a civilian. And one of the things that I've, I've heard about, you know, when I talk to some of the people, like when I was at the restaurant or whatever, hanging out at the bar, I'd be like, hey, you know, what's it like? And they, they said they seem to have, from what I could tell, a pretty good local support group, whether it's it's just them getting together or, I don't know, the Army maybe has the ability to, to help people out in this situation. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Is that is there some kind of a organization within the army that helps out the families back home? There are some there are some good organizations. Um, many of them, uh, you know, have been started by former military members or, or spouses um, or family members. Uh, there's kind of um, it's it's not an official organization, but the the army um, officially supports it i guess uh, i guess you could say is is what we would call a family readiness group uh and so a family readiness group is kind of the army's i guess i would say official answer to to the stress uh that's that's on military families for the constant change and and the separation and things like that but uh you know really i would say it's military family members uh you have people that uh, uh, that are resilient, that have experience, uh, they've been around for a while, and they take care of one another. Uh, they take care of new family members. Uh, they 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 take care of each other. Uh, it's it's really the 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 members of the military themselves and and the and the family members uh, that that come together, you know, and and do what they need to do. So th- that's a challenge. Then that seems like their way of getting above that challenge. Uh, the other, you know, the, it seems like the the other challenges in the job are, are just like working for a big corporation. You know, you have politics and anything you do. You know, you have people that you have yeah, to get totally. along with that you can't. So it's it's just similar to any other job, it seems, uh, except for there's there's a lot more structure uh, within your daily life. Uh, that's uh, you know, <laughs> that was one thing that I didn't like when I was on an army base is the fact that uh, you know everything happened at the same time and uh, you know we we actually were in, uh, down at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Uh, we actually I was part of a, a team, a sports team, where we actually trained on base 
and they gave us their gym and everything. And it was interesting how every morning at the same time they would get in, get up and go running. <laughs> and I was like, and then they and then they came in and said, "Hey, you know, we have to inspect your room." I was like, "Oh, wait a minute, I don't know how I'm not all for this." <laughs> so, that, that for some of us, that also might be a challenge, and that would be me because I'm not the neatest guy in the world. <laughs> so yeah, I've, the, I've taken my friends before on a, on a base and. Uh, you know, we'll be driving around talking, everything will be normal. And all of a sudden everybody will stop what they're doing. They, sh- they stop the car. Everyone gets out of the car and, and they all like put their hand over their heart and everybody does like listens to bugle music. And, and then this person's still in the car. Like, what are you people do- <laughs> doing? You know, because uh, we have all these, uh, th- these interesting, you know, customs and things like that. Uh, yeah. And th- it, yeah. So, but yeah, that you know, that, that's. I was, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say that that's the cool thing about the job is that you, there is that consistency. You know, that's going to happen, and uh, you know that yeah. was that was one thing when I, I was on the base for three weeks. I knew after three weeks exactly what was going to happen every time of the day, etc. And uh, it was actually not that bad uh, once I got used to it. Uh, except the part about making my bed. I really didn't, and this is a while ago, I didn't like doing that, but <laughs> that, that, that was just me. <laughs> I still struggle with that. <laughs> <laughs> so other than those struggles, I mean, otherwise the job is, is pretty cool. I mean, some of this flying you get to do is really awesome, and and the aircraft you fly is, is, is super-duper cool. I mean, is there anything, speak, let's get back to the aircraft and the flying portion of it. The, and, you know, we talked a little about the challenges of, of uh, working in the Army, but now the aircraft itself, um, I think that's a that's a cool plane, a cool excuse me, cool aircraft. Um, what are some of the things about it you really like? I mean, what's what's is there one thing that you think is like the coolest thing about the aircraft? Oh man, uh, you're talking about the Blackhawk. Yeah, the one that you're you're involved with right now. Yeah. Um, so the Blackhawk is. Uh, th- this is all just my opinion, but uh, it's such an ugly thing you know <laughs> but it's uh and it's so it's not necessarily a, a stable platform like if you if you take if you look at uh, uh the way the uh, uh intermediate section moves into the tail pylon and and uh, the the stabilator and the tail rotor and everything uh the the tail rotor actually provides part of the lift vector of the whole airframe mm. uh, and i i think the whole thing is not in balance we have things that balance things that keep things in balance that keep things in balance uh because it's uh, it's not stable uh and that's part of just being a helicopter but i think it's designed that way but the black hawk uh if you take if you try to imagine and you look at it if you take off the tail cone uh, and and the uh, the modules, the engine modules, and the the uh, flight control system up at the top, it almost resembles an egg. And I think that's what is actually cool is uh, it's so survivable. Uh, that's the thing about it is it's designed uh, to. It's just so uh, something so catastrophic can happen with that aircraft. Uh, and the people inside will still live. It's that's what's amazing. Uh, there's so much redundancy in the in the helicopter, and so much survivability. I think that's what's really amazing about the Blackhawk. Interesting. Yeah, and that that's, yeah. that would make me happy too, especially if I'm in it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, the pilots aren't aren't so lucky, but the yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, true. They're up, they're up the bottom of the egg, so to speak. But <laughs> the the passengers, they 
get to enjoy the benefits of the of the egg. Well, gosh, this has been cool I, uh, talking to you about all this uh, Army aviation and stuff. But, you know, going back to jobs, and let's talk a little bit about unmanned aircraft systems. We uh, we talked about different jobs that are available. If you say you don't want to be in, into the – you don't want to fly and you want to get into something else. Say, my actu- my wife used to work on helicopters in the uh, in the Navy, actually. the Oh, gosh, I can't remember the designation. The, it's a large helicopter off the carrier that they fly. And um, they she actually did what's called maintenance control were would schedule the parts and make sure the parts got to the aircraft and were there on time and uh it, it's actually pretty complex you know as far as uh scheduling all the aircraft and the parts and the and where they need to go where they need to be warehoused etc uh so we talked a little bit about you know everybody talks about pilots and mechanics and but you also have fuel supply what and let's just review a couple other ones that might be involved in in army aviation yeah you definitely got to mention flight operations uh, you have component repairmen. I, I would separate that out. That's something um, uh, very those, – those folks are often the linchpin, like, oh, my gosh, where is our avionics guy? Because he'll be the one avionics guy because that's how technical uh, and, and how much expertise they hold. Uh, you've got um, uh, air traffic controllers. Uh, um, you've got uh, logistics. There's an entire field – of uh, logistics and, and supply chain management dedicated just to aviation, and there needs to be just to aviation. So, oh, and computer people. Uh, you have uh, people at the airfield that uh, focus on on like aviation computer systems and information management and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's more. There's more a ton of. <laughs> more than you think. There's more jobs than you think. That's for sure. Yeah. So now let's get beyond the jobs in the army because someday you're going to leave the army and so is everybody else. So it's a, it's a finite. You know, there's just a. Well, I don't know. I guess you could you could go into some kind of management position there, but there's uh, a certain point where you're going to either retire and then move on. And a lot of guys are young when they retire because they went in when they were very young. Uh, I see a lot of folks I fly with coming out. And uh, you know, primarily Air Force and and uh, Navy, but they come out in their forties, and now they're retired in their forties and want to do something. They move on to the airlines. Uh, what type of jobs do you see uh, Army aviators uh, moving into, and from where they are now? You know, what what is their goal usually when they go out there? That's a good question. Um, and what jobs do you have you heard of them actually getting when they leave the Army? I know that uh, a lot of the maintainers that we have here at the airfield are actually not uh, Army maintainers. Uh, they're former Marine Corps, Air Force, Army, uh, um, UH-60, HH-60, you know, all those different H-60 variants, uh, mechanics, uh, and they've been doing it now. So they may have even retired from their military job i guess so what i'm saying is you can continue to do what you're doing so how about the folks that want to fly uh um, you know as far as operations like, specialists they okay. can they can work at an airport uh yeah uh, i know now this is one thing where uh i would say uh, if you it really is different if you're a commissioned officer versus a warrant officer a commissioned officer their goal is eventually to be like our upper management you know so they're not eventually they will be out of the cockpit uh so those are the things that i'm i'm finding that um my skill set is is more adapted for as my career develops for a warrant officer 
It's the same thing. Certainly, they can. Uh, and actually, there's a cool website. Uh, maybe we can mention uh, JS Firms. Uh, it's mm-hmm. former military people that put together a website. And there are all these helicopter jobs out there. Um, obviously, you know, it's firefighting and uh, medevac and all this stuff that these guys, they've already done that and mastered it in the military. Now they're going to keep doing it as a civilian. And um, yeah, so. Well, JS Firm actually is, uh, they were on one of our episodes previous. I'll, I'll put a link there and, you, and talk a little bit really? about that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, we yeah. talked actually a little bit more about, with Amanda Myers, we talked a little bit about, uh, in episode 20, uh, about successful interviews and resumes. As a matter of fact, maybe we'll have them on again. Uh, as a ma- and interestingly enough, just to give them another little plug here on JS Firm, and we'll put this link out there uh, to episode 20, they actually, uh, you know, I'm involved with Sun and Fun, and they were the uh, organization that sponsored the job fair at Sun and Fun. They ran the whole job fair. JS Firm did wow. at Sun and Fun. So they do get involved in quite a few different things. We'll have to have them on again because that was over 40 episodes ago. Um, and just a really good people. I did not realize their background. Uh, that there was a lot of folks that were from the army, et cetera, and uh, and know something about helicopters. But we we definitely will will get them on again to talk about other jobs because really all we talked about was how to uh, you know how to prepare your resume and how to get ready for an interview. So uh, I guess the next time we'll have to talk more since since you suggested it. Uh, so that's they awesome. They work with a lot of army aviators. That's that's uh, that's for sure. Awesome, um, awesome. A lot of the the pilots I'm working with right now they they they're all involved with JS firm. So. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll definitely we'll definitely be having them on again just to talk about that, uh, and, and that's that's a good suggestion. You know, going out there to look for jobs. Um, other, you know, we'll have a couple other websites like we said about the multinational force. Um, but one question before we we kind of wrap up here, and I just want to make sure we get everything that you wanted to talk about here. Uh, one of the concerns that I've heard from some pilots, uh, you know, I have had some army aviators in my crash pad. And uh, crash pads, you know, a place where you know, a lot of airline pilots will get together and, and stay, and they're only there for a couple of days while they're there for assignment. Uh, they usually just sleep one or two nights in a week, and that's it. But the uh, and we all share this, you know. There's like 16 of us in one house. <laughs> but he was saying this this one aviator, <laughs> he was saying that that he was doing UAVs, unmanned aircraft systems, and uh, he did that for for quite some time. And and he had a lot of of rotor time. He had no fixed wing time. But now he wants to become an airline pilot. And so what he's had to do is he's got all this. I mean, six thousand hours, you know, of experience. And wow, it really and that's a ton of time. Um, he yeah. was in army for a long time, and that's a lot of flying. And he said most Wait, guys six thousand hours as a as a rotor craft pilot. Well, he did the UAVs. He did UAVs for oh, okay. I think about three thousand okay. of those. And uh, he said that he got, he was able to, he stayed in for quite some time, but he was uh, trying to get more time fixed wing. He only had about 800 hours fixed wing out of all that, those hours. And it's like, wow, you know what, uh, you don't think about this, but a lot of airlines and a lot of the jobs with the fixed swing, and that, that's where some of these guys are going because they're like, hey, listen, I know the pay is really good. I want to go that route. Uh, they have to go out and transition 
to their fixed wing. And uh, in other words, they have to get their multi-engine commercial licenses. And I actually did a little work with some of these folks in Texas uh, doing uh, transitions from, from helicopter to fixed wing. Uh, but building those hours oh, really? is really important. Yeah, there's a place called Techstar that's down there that I, I worked with. And it's uh, I think they're still around. But it's absolutely fascinating. What town is that? Uh... Uh, that was actually down in the Galveston area. And uh, it was out of uh, primarily out of Houston Hobby Airport when I was doing the, doing the flying there. But there's a lot like PHI uh, worked a lot with those, some of those guys. Uh, but there's yeah, when you yeah. get into that firm, PHI's uh, Petroleum Helicopters Incorporated. That is an awesome job. Those guys get to do some really cool flying, and um, yeah, and that's another avenue going out. And what they do is they primarily uh, support the oil rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico primarily and they do some other stuff but uh really fascinating fascinating stuff they do as a matter of fact that's how i got most of my helicopter time uh was on uh, when they're on a mission uh that they on the empty leg i got to actually do some flight training with some pretty darn experienced guys uh to teach me how to hover and stuff like that uh, but that and the hovering like i said is is the most amazing but the transition here is from you know, from going to the Army, there's a lot of, there are some opportunities out there, and they love Army helicopter pilots. Is That was kind of the, what the feeling I got, is that, you know, you talk to, like, the majority of these guys, they're all Army helicopter pilots, and they, uh, and the reason is that they have so darn much experience flying uh, when they come to them for an interview. So that's that's a big bonus. That's a big plus. And another thing, too, that, that I've seen transition from, from doing that is to actually overseas. Because I have a friend that was with PHI, and now he's overseas again. In, uh, now, he was in Afghanistan as an army. Now he's a contractor flying helicopters. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's <laughs> that's really cool. And And he's getting a really, really good pay. Uh, while he's over there, obviously it's it's somewhat hazardous, you know, because you're you're still carrying a gun and people are uh, might be shooting at you possibly, uh, and you're going into areas where people aren't quite as friendly. Uh, but that so there there are the, all these incredible opportunities. Um, but getting back to to the unmanned systems, I've I've heard more and more people uh, saying that that they're going to that. So let's let's uh, you know to back up here say, hey, listen, you know, are you concerned or are there people? Is, is that a should that be a concern of of anybody that's going into army aviation or or helicopters or any type of aviation in general, is the substitution of unmanned aircraft systems uh, into into our forces. This is just my opinion. I'm not trained uh, to, to operate uh, what we call UAS uh, or UAVs, um, and uh, I've never I've never personally operated them uh, or anything like that. I've I've received training. Um, uh, most people in the army now have been exposed to them because they're a big part of uh, of what we do now. But uh, um, my opinion is uh, no. I don't think that uh, I don't think that the the need uh, for uh, for manned systems is going to go away entirely uh, anytime soon. There has to be some major changes in uh, in what people are comfortable with uh, before that can happen. And um, we can see some we can see how it affects things. Um, you know. I, Kiowa pilots right now, um, many of the Kiowa pilots we know, they're being asked, uh, they're, they're told, hey, we don't need your, your airframe anymore. Uh, the type of flying, the mission, we can do that with the UAV now. Uh, so you're either going to have to train on a new airframe or you're going to have to find a new, uh, new job. Uh, so it, has it had an impact? Certainly. Um, but um, 
I think um, something that that we're going to have to overcome uh, uh, that hasn't. Um, uh, I don't even think. I don't even think Americans uh, have seen um, the full extent of this is the stigma associated with unmanned systems, uh, and and I, we can see this, you know, in, in the military. Um, but uh, the use of unmanned systems uh, in South Asia, um, uh, the use of unmanned systems here, for example, it's prohibited by the treaty. Uh, there are no unmanned systems allowed. Uh, but I can see, um, you know, the amount of money that it takes to operate our fleet of helicopters here. And it's an aging fleet of helicopters. Uh, all of the pilots, all of the maintenance, all of the crews. Uh, having civilian observers get on board and go out and check everything, uh, it's, it's, it's immensely, uh, it's so costly to do that. And if we had uh, a small number of UAVs, we could do it for a fraction of the cost probably and do it better probably. I don't, I don't know. But uh, uh, I, I don't think that uh, people are, are comfortable with that, you know. Um, having a, uh, an eye in the sky that just, uh, that sort of impersonally just, uh, looks at what's going on. Um, it, there's a detachment to it, uh, that is, is contrary to, to, I think to human behavior. That's almost like in, in, uh, the airlines, uh, even if they could replace uh, you, Carl, no offense, but yeah, they <laughs> if they, hey, hey, yeah, if they, if they could replace you with a, they would. With a, a machine or, or a robot or something, sure. yeah, certainly they would. But I, I don't think uh, passengers, for example, or customers are ready for that because uh, it says uh, these people aren't important enough for me to put a human face, a human being here, uh, you know, um, uh, but uh, maybe that'll change. Maybe, yeah. you know, uh, maybe. Well, well I, I was just going to say that to add to what you're saying, you know, there's there's uh, the pilot not just flies the plane, but he manages the flight. And uh, a lot of people don't yeah. realize a lot of what we do. You know, I had a medical emergency last week, and a lot of what we do is we make decisions based on the dynamic. Uh, environment around that emergency and because uh, it's constantly changing uh, is the person re you know are they are they uh, responsive at all uh, we contact people over at you know that are in charge with the medical systems you know and uh, I don't think I can mention the name of it but there's a company that does that where they'll they have doctors on call that can actually help us out and you know you don't you want to have somebody there making a decision. Okay, uh, we're over such and such a country. Okay, we don't normally go to this country, but at this point, uh, we have to get on the ground because this person's going to not make it anyway. Uh, do we do we do that? You know, we're 400 miles off the coast. Uh, do we keep going towards one destination or the next? So those are all de those are all types of conversations you have that we don't have the communication ability. Uh, to to be able to make those decisions along with an operational type of person on the ground, because uh, you know the, you're you know you know you've been out there, uh, you got to make a decision real fast. You you can't call a friend. You, yeah. There's no time to phone a friend when you're in the airplane or an aircraft. Yeah. There's no phone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's time yeah. to make, make that decision now. So I think I think in that manner, yes, you're not going to see the the pilots being removed. But we have removed one of the the air crew members uh, with the airlines, uh, the engineer, the flight engineer. Uh, yeah. When I started out, yeah, we had flight engineers, and you could get uh, you know the professional flight engineer rating. Uh, there, uh, there's no more flight engineers. The computer does that. Um, 
But you know, as far as uh, having a, a person that's going to make all these type of decisions now, you, you're—I don't think we'll ever get rid of it in the airline world. Maybe some others, and and along with what they're the comfortableness of of flying over the sea, overseas, uh, you know, is you know with the unmanned aircraft systems, the same issues are happening in the United States. Uh, we have the, those same challenges uh, that you know. I, I don't think you'll you, you know you, you want an eye in the sky spying on you as as what we feel you know over here possibly. Uh, but it'll it's changing. Uh, the dynamic is changing because if if an unmanned aircraft system can save a life, uh, yeah, I'm all for it. You know, if they can do it a lot cheaper in yeah. places uh, that that you can't in, in another aircraft, yeah, I'm all for it. You know, I have uh, a lot of my friends that are A10 drivers. Uh, they they said, gee, you know, we feel like we're we're being replaced by by uh, you know, unmanned aircraft systems. I was like, possibly, <laughs> possibly yeah. that, that could happen. Because it's safer, too. You know, there's not, there's no pilot uh, in, in an unmanned aircraft system. But as opposed to a combat situation, uh, which, which the majority of flying I, in the military and the majority of flying uh, you're looking at an unmanned aircraft system is, is really not in a combat situation. It's more of an observation. Uh, and you're and maybe in a policing role. Uh, there, there is there. We cannot accept collateral damage that you would accept in a wartime environment. That just, just no one's going to accept that. And and I think we have to get to the point where the the safety level is is so high, and, and the ability to fly amongst other aircraft is is, is high enough uh, that we will not have an, an issue of having any type of accidents or incidents with other with UAVs. And then we're a little we're far from there, but hey. You never know. Someday it might be like George Jetson. Yeah. Just jump in there and go, you know, and <laughs> press a button and go to the grocery store in, in your, your hovercraft. Uh, so that it's yeah. <laughs> not, not quite there yet. Um, there you go. That's but, Carl's vision of the future pilot. The future pilot. George Jetson. <laughs> George Jetson. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so, yeah, so the unmanned aircraft systems yeah, is, is a bit, little bit of a concern, but there are certain things that just only humans can do. And I, I think that's the, you know, we joke about it, but it's true. I mean, it's something you need to be concerned about. But uh, there are certain roles that, that an aircraft by itself cannot play. You need to have a, a human inside there. Um, but uh, Ross, this has been awesome. Is there anything we missed? Is there anything else you wanna you wanna talk about here before we start wrapping this up? Is there there anything that uh, you can tell folks that are interested in aviation, uh, specifically in the in the Army, uh, about applying, uh, et cetera? Uh, and also possibly if, if they're thinking about it, you know, and they want, they have questions, you know, of course, they can go to slash contact, and I hope you'd be willing to answer them if I forward them to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anybody. Anybody can contact me. Um, I'll, I'll give you uh, uh, my uh, my email address and things like that, and I'd be happy to talk to uh, anyone. When I was trying to get into Army aviation, I would have been ecstatic if somebody inside of Army aviation could have given me an insider perspective, and and I, I definitely want to provide that to anybody that uh, uh, that's interested in that. Awesome. Well, watch what you wish for because usually we get a, a few dozen uh, emails asking about the jobs after this goes live. Oh wow! Uh, but it, that's okay. I mean, it's we'll, we'll, we'll I'll help I'll help too in answering that. Hopefully, some of those. But it's oh, yeah. really neat to have an inside view uh, of what it's like to be in Army aviation. It's it's different than you know. Here's a real Army pilot that's that's out there doing it right now. And I, I really appreciate your being here. I mean, this has been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. 
Um, yeah. As, as far as information uh, online that they can look up, you'd mentioned GoArmy.com, and we'll I'll have that a link to that. Uh, your multinational force mfo.org we'll have a link to that there also and of course the other episodes where we talked uh, helicopters like uh, the police helicopter pilot in episode 21 or the coast guard in, in episode 39 and also js firm like you talked about we'll, we'll uh for those right now that are actual army aviators and looking for a job in the future or somebody who's into helicopters it's episode 20 is a link to their website uh, and also that interview, and we'll have JS Firm on again to talk more. Uh, so that was terrific. Awesome. Any yeah. any last advice for someone that says, you know, you're a pretty good example of somebody who who at first could not get into the Army helicopters because of, of a physical limitation, but you wound up there. Uh, if you yeah. really want to do this, you know, or there's someone listening right now and wants to do it. What, what would you tell them if they're sitting there thinking, gee, I'm not sure I can do this? And I, I understand that, uh, and I want to encourage those people. Um, uh, if you have some sort of uh, limitation or, or obstacle, one thing I would say is uh, that's, uh, that's part of the journey, and, and uh, you're, you're just one of us. Every single person is going to face uh, obstacles and challenges, and uh, I, I encourage you, you can. You can do it. Um, and uh, if, if that's what you you really want to do, uh, you you can you can make it happen. Every step along the way, uh, it wasn't just that permanent disqualification. But uh, I would get told later, "Hey, no, you can't complete flight school because of this," or uh, you know, I would get uh, uh, things have come up along the way in life, uh, and and uh, I I know I'm. <laughs> I'm like you, Carl, and I like a lot of the listeners. I am so passionate about this, and I love it so much. It's in my blood. Uh, I just love flying. So, uh, you know, what do you do when you're faced with that? Like, well, you know, uh, what happens if I'm separated from this? And I think it just takes, I think it takes courage to just say, I'm just going to do it anyway. And maybe I get to just experience this part of it, and you just appreciate and experience. Uh, what you get, uh, what you get to be a part of when when you're there. Uh, if you get in that cockpit, if you get the time with the airplane, uh, that's the other thing is we're always chasing that next thing, especially in aviation. Uh, just like the machines, you know, we're pilots are always moving in their careers. Uh, so you think, oh, after this check ride, I'll relax, right? You know, but but guess what? There's another check ride. <laughs> There's another flight physical. It'll never. So you have to enjoy. You just have to enjoy uh, where where you're at. And and yeah, I should I should play this back to myself. <laughs> well, you really should. I mean, you have to enjoy the journey. You have to enjoy where you are. And and you obviously do. I mean, obviously you enjoy what you're doing right now. And uh, and you're making a difference uh, in in the world, uh, and you're making a difference in many people's lives in many ways. I mean, the, not just through your leadership position, but you're physically doing it. You know, you're, you're making a difference, which I think is is really awesome. And uh, you know, the other thing too that you do is you you know you keep things uh, safe for for us back home. You keep them safe for people around the world, and we really appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's it's those people like yourself that are serving in the military that that enable us to to actually uh, have the freedoms that we have now, and and not only that, to exercise those freedoms. Because without that, uh, I think we forget that sometimes. That that without uh, our military, you know, and everybody that that's out there that are our first responders, etc. Without those folks, we we would not 
not just have the the freedoms, but be able to exercise those freedoms. So we really appreciate that, and we appreciate uh, what you do, Ross, and and all those people out there that are serving in the military. Um, you know, this has been been awesome. Uh, we, I'd love to have you on again, or, or an, have you answer some more questions because uh, I could talk forever. We're actually up against the the hour mark in the episode, but I'll have all those out there I, and all those links out there, and and I'll I'll have uh, in the contact form. I'll have uh, all these emails that that come in as questions forward to you, Ross. Again, thanks so much for your service, and, and thanks for thanks, being Carl. on. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, this is. Uh, I'm really grateful for uh, for your show, and I, I mean, I love your show so. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. And if you're listening right now and you've been motivated by this, again, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact and send us some questions. I'll, I'll send them off to Captain McClure and he'll, he'll answer some of those. Also, if you appreciate the contact of this podcast, please uh, go out there to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Check out the sponsors in the in the right column there. Consider membership if you're looking for money uh, in, in aviation training because we have a great scholarships page now. And it's constantly growing. So, plus, along with the membership, you also get. Uh, we're putting out all the lectures that I do. I, I am a lecturer in aviation safety, and what I've started doing is recording those lectures and putting the audio with the slides and putting them out there on the website. So you might learn something. Uh, my last lecture was about thunderstorms, and that'll be up there uh, on the website there. Well, folks, I really appreciate you listening, and uh, just remember one thing: like like Ross said, you know, enjoy where you are now. Uh, I always say, enjoy the journey. Uh, and, and hopefully this has spurred you to look into something in your career. Do something now as far as what you, you know, something in the future you want to look into. Uh, look at this website, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 66. Uh, if it's something, just looking up a website, whatever it is, just do something. Uh, move forward in your career because you never, ever stop. Like you said, you're always, as, as aviators, we're always looking for the next thing. Well, folks, uh, talk to you next episode and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, all rights reserved.